So sorry if I sound like I'm congested, got cold, it's just hay fever. And before I start, another little issue that I'm having is right now there's a sparrow that seems to be like flying directly past several times a minute. My movement detector on the alarm system and it keeps ringing my phone. You think, right, we'll turn your phone off, but I need it to read the letterbox synopsis, which I'll be doing in a second. So, Mr. David Fincher was fresh off of pop videos. Rick Springfield, according to Letterboxd. And whilst I do agree that Alien 3 isn't a touch on the first two installments, there is still so much depresso fun to be had with this one. And that is no matter if it's the theatrical version that you're watching or the assembly cut. Fincher obviously now looks back and hates every aspect of doing this, but fair enough, it's not his vision, but it's still a good vision. It's still a great film. Not perfect, but it is great. And sure, some of the digital effects here, they don't hold water, but there are tons that still do. And in the early 90s, there were some real stinkers about. I mean, even though I love it, even though I absolutely love it. Do you remember the Tommy Knockers? It came out a year later. That's all I'm going to say. And I would go as far to say, actually, that in fact, the visual effects were nominated for an Academy Award at the time. So give it a break, you naysayers. More than likely, though, the reason why fans actually look down on this one so hard and that is really hard during and after the release of it, is that it starts on such a downer. And I admit, I also felt a little bit cheated. The end of part two with Ripley, Bishop and Newt, they're safe, and they're on their way to a new adventure maybe. That was such a victory. I was on such a high after watching that. It was a complete adrenaline rush of a film. This one, not so much. And that you have to begin this film with only Ripley alive. It's a bit of a con. And then, of course, you have to sit through a long-ass, like, downbeat religious prison monster movie. It does ask a lot of people that have come to the flock after Alien 2. Or, should we just call it, Aliens. But you know what? You can ask what you like of me. Just make sure that the characters are interesting, the religious aspects, I want them to be engaging, and most of all, I want that monster to be a real threat. And Alien 3, you did a good job. Was there an alien on board? Yes. Weapons of any kind. Let's start. Get here! 
This is the letterboxed synopsis. The bitch is back. After escaping with Newt and Hicks from the alien planet, Ripley crash lands on Florina 161, a prison planet and host to a correctional facility. Unfortunately, although Newt and Hicks do not survive the crash, a more unwelcome visitor does. The prison does not allow weapons of any kind, and with aid being a long time away, the prisoners must simply survive in any way that they can. And I want to do an MVP, and that MVP is going to be Brian Glover. He gets my shout out today because I don't think I'm ever going to have the opportunity to do it again. In Alien 3, he plays Harold Andrew. He's the prison warden. He is the one that attempts damage control on both the arrival of Ripley and the alien. And although Glover only features in three horror movies, they're all of import. His most recent one was Alien 3. And of course, this movie, it shows that the franchise is fallible, yet with the passing of time, and also maybe because all the further sequels have been worse than this one, this one's reputation is slowly growing year upon year. Before this, though, in 1984, he was in The Company of Wolves, which featured him in a small but important role as a father figure. And once again, over the years, this smaller budget production has grown in popularity. This time, though, I think it's nostalgia that's played a part as those that saw it when they were really young, they were terrified. And now that these people are grown up and, you know, write for magazines and present podcasts and are film critics of some sort or another, well, this film's just gained revenance every year that's passed. Finally, though, we have to head back to 1981, and we've covered it recently. An American Werewolf in London was his first horror appearance. He is the one that is the ringleader in the pub. That's the slaughtered lamb, and he tells that rubbish joke. Yeah, that's him, slaphead. Sadly, though, in 1997, at the age of 63, he died in his sleep due to ongoing issues with a brain tumour. And yes, Brian Glover, you'll be sadly missed. That was a track called Lento, scored by Elliot Goldenthal. It's no big ask, right? Alien was iconically scored by Jerry Goldsmith. The sequel, not so iconic, but still incredible. That soundtrack was impeccably, impeccably scored by James Horner. Here, though, Goldenthal realises 
that the religious aspects of the film, they need to take the lead in this score. And not only honing in and referencing classical pieces that are all indebted to religious themes, but also in the use of choirs throughout. But if you're thinking, well, that's all very well and good, but where's the horror? Well, there is a track like Candles in the Wind, and that answers that. There is screeching strings, and these are screeching strings that are enough to give me, Paul, a grown man, the actual willies. All in all, I think this score is a winner. It does everything I could want a soundtrack of this sort of film to do. And all that religious stuff, it just adds and adds loads of weight. And it makes this this huge thing that would just stand out from the 1992 pack. But I know what you're asking. You're saying, well, I've always given this one a miss. I've never seen this. Where can you watch Alien 3? Well, here's the deal with Alien 3. I'm not bothered to even tell you or even to look where you can stream this one. Because the Alien Quadrilogy? I think it's Quadrilogy? Anyway... Because the Alien Quadrilogy box set, it's been in print for what seems like ever. It's always at a low cost. And I would say at least, at least 15 years it's been that way. It's an essential piece of horror kit for anyone with even a passing interest in science fiction horror. So get that. If you haven't already got it, get it. Good Lord. And what about podcasts? Films on trial, well, they took the movie to school in their 12th of July 2017 episode. And the Film Flamers podcast, they put out their deep dive of Alien 3 back in July of 2021. Robert Zemeckis directed this one, and Robert Zemeckis also produced this one. This is a movie about being granted eternal life, and all the pitfalls are going to come as a consequence of that gift. And I do think this one slides into horror often enough to get itself in this list, but it's definitely more focused on the fantastical elements therein, so just be aware going in, this isn't a bloodfest. There is a scene in here where Meryl Streep gets her head smashed by a shovel and it twists at a bizarre and unnatural rotational angle. Also, just as a side note here, no spoilers, but the ending for this one is so tight. It's not that often that you can actually feel this sad and serious tone and a certain weight to a film whilst also ending on a comedy beat. This one just nails that. This is Death Becomes Her. Don't you know that it's worth every treasure on earth to be young at heart? Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. She was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Are about to go too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. 
Now a warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are, but you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's dead, Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! You pushed me down the stairs. I'm so sweaty. I don't think it's sweat, honey. I think you're defrosting. Universal Pictures presents Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis. It's a miracle! And Goldie Hawn. Look at me. I'm soaking wet. Death becomes her. And here's your letterbox synopsis. It's very long. In one small bottle, the fountain of youth. The secret of eternal life. The power of an ancient potion. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Madeline is married to Ernest, who was once arch-rival Helen's fiancé. After recovering from a mental breakdown, Helen vows to kill Madeline and steal back Ernest. Unfortunately for everyone, the introduction of a magic potion causes things to be a great deal more complicated than a mere murder plot. And whilst I do think that Bruce Willis absolutely kills it in this one, I personally reckon it is as convincing as Sixth Sense and Die Hard. I like him that much in it. But you cannot deny that the real stars of Death Becomes Her are the women. And it's Goldie Horn and Meryl Streep in the leads. Now, let's talk about their MVP horror power. We've got Meryl Streep in horror. So as usual, I did a dig into Letterboxd and IMDb. And her only horror credit is Death Becomes Her. Not one other horror film. Not one. I cannot believe that. Clearly, we're just too lowbrow. Well, that's all right. Instead, with a big middle finger to Meryl Streep, we're going to head over to Goldie Horn. Let's go through her horror back catalogue. And as usual, I look through Letterboxd. I look through IMDb. I even did a Google search this time. And we found one. It's Death Becomes Her. Nothing else. That's it. Lordy, lordy. For these two women, smeg you. Smeg you very much. That was a little bit of the score by Alan Silvestri. It's fully orchestral this time around with a lot of emphasis on deep strings just to build the tension. But also this one features a lot of wistful longing. There are a lot of sad themes in this one. 
especially when the instruments are taken out of the orchestra and they're given their solos. When an instrument is isolated in this, you know it's for a scene which is going to make you feel sad. Most importantly though, the comedy touches of this film itself, they're often backed by a playful plucking rather than that really egging the farcical pudding type stuff that I really hate. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that. It maybe plays a very small part in the scheme of things with this soundtrack, but it could have easily ruined the feel of the whole piece if you're going to just go into those big, big comedy beats. So I'm so happy that it is just playful. I like that. So if you want to know where you can currently watch it for free, uh, well, you can go to Netflix. It's streaming there for free in the UK. Also on, I think that's Virgin TV Go. Yeah, it is Virgin TV Go. But inevitably, the US has a lot more places where you can actually find it and stream it. you got Fubo, you got Showtime, you've got Direct TV, and also you've got the Showtime Roku Premium channel. So you've got, hang on, you've got Showtime, and you've got Showtime Roku Premium channel. Just greedy. As for podcasts, the Villain Was Right podcast. They had their say in October 2021. And hey, do you remember that podcast? They spoke about Death Becomes Her in September of 2017. And that's it. Death Becomes Her. go this is my next pick twin peaks fire walk with me it kicks off like a bizarre surrealist comedy with lynch shouting at a secretary and then the busload of school kids they're screaming as the fed search a driver and they arrest a young couple after this we're cutting to a woman in a red dress uh, and she's doing this insane sort of weird dance Although we find out very shortly after that that all those actions that she was doing, it was a code. Stomping the feet, hand in the pocket. What does that blue rose mean? Another weird bit that I forgot to mention when we're actually discussing this thing with Amber in a moment is when the feds are inspecting the caravan of the freshly murdered girl. Approaching the caravan, right at the front door, hunched over, is a really dirty looking old lady. When they question her, she just backs off. Enter Cooper. And yeah, we can relax. We're actually back into the world now of Twin Peaks. We get a surreal backwards dream sequence, giving us a clue about something or rather. But don't worry, Cooper's on the case. One year later, we're meeting Laura Palmer and she is taking cocaine at school. Also in this film, her face at one point goes all ghoulish and real horror as she speaks and then... Uh, I think she gets off with a shrink shortly after that. Every male in this film just seems infatuated with her. She goes home and of course then we get the most terrifying of moments in cinema history where Bob is hiding behind the dresser. Her dad, Leyland, he's a dick to her at the dinner table and so on and so forth. But then I just want to mention the casting in this thing. We've got Kiefer Sutherland, we've got Chris Isaac, we've got Harry Dean Stanton... At one point, David Bowie comes into play. And finally, with this 
sort of messy intro. I think that Moira Kelly is actually great in this as Donna, but I do hate it when an actor gets replaced. Uh, and Lara Flynn Boyle, she is simply amazing for Twin Peaks. But she turned this one down because she got sidelined in season two and she was also in the middle of filming the bomb where the day takes you. I think it's a big, big shame and one of the saddest things about the production of this film. But, you know, Moira Kelly, she's great. Anyway, what am I talking about? This is Twin Peaks. letterbox synopsis meet laura palmer in a town where nothing is as it seems and everyone has something to hide in the questionable town of deer meadow washington fbi agent desmond inexplicably disappears while hunting for the man who murdered a teen girl the killer is never apprehended and after experiencing dark visions and a supernatural encounter Agent Dale Cooper chinnily predicts that the culprit will claim another life. Meanwhile, in the more cosy town of Twin Peaks, hedonistic beauty Laura Palmer hangs with lowlives and seems destined for a grisly fate. Right, now let's welcome back to the show podcast regular Amber T., she is the host of Horn Blood Fire podcast. She last spoke with us on the 1981 Big Hitter episode about that incredible, incredible movie, Possession. And she's going to be coming back soon for the best Christmas horror films of all time episode, which is going to land, I think, on December the 1st. If you want to find out what she's up to, then you can head over to Twitter and check out at Horn Blood Fire, and then you can keep up with all her wares. Usually, it'll be something horror related. But for now, this is our chat. It took place at the end of that stinking hot July. Oh, the memories, the memories. But for now, let's get Twin Peaking. Am I right? <laughs> Paul, I'm good. Sorry, can I, just, can I start again? Can no, I like out? to be called Thought Park. It's good. Sorry, hi Thought Park. Um, <laughs> hi Paul, I'm great. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be back with you. Had so much fun last time, so thanks for having me again. Uh, it was a good episode last time. I know that these are the ones that I'm going to get, uh, especially this one actually, that I'm going to get a lot of feedback on and I'll definitely pass you it all over. Because um, it's really interesting when they they feed back. It's only on certain films, and it's only on the ones we do deep dives in. But 
everyone is always so polite and then every now and again I say something that like someone doesn't agree with and it, <laughs> it just that's my inbox is full of people going what is wrong with you yeah <laughs> what are you doing putting troll hunter at number one you know <laughs> I feel like um yeah definitely the movie that you're talking about today is gonna have some passionate responses to it I think people get very uh should we say het up about their views on it yeah, do you call this Firewalk With Me or do you always say oh, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me? I just call it Firewalk With Me. I mean, I know technically the full title is Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, but I feel like that is a long thing to say. And I feel like if you're, you know, Firewalk With Me is not a film that you're going to bring up in conversation with like a normal person. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if you're bringing up Firewalk With Me, you're probably either talking to a Lynch fan or a horror movie fan, or just a film fan in general, because it's not something that, you know, the average moviegoer is going to see. Yeah, well, we'll get into that, because there's there's really interesting things between, like, the TV series and this that will shape the way you watch it. So we'll get there. Now, before we do, we just mentioned David Lynch, which is why I switched it on to record, because I didn't want to miss it. (laughs) Uh, but like, how do you feel about him in general? Uh, is it someone that you like, oh, I just love to sit and watch this man? Yeah, I, I love him. I think David Lynch is one of my all-time favourite directors. Um, aside from like his work, I, I really am obsessed with him as a person. Like He is just a stone-cold weirdo, and I love that. I love how... I love how unapologetic he is about refusing to explain his work. You know, there's that that infamous um, clip of him on a talk show where the guy is like, um, explain a razor head. And he just goes, no, (laughs) because like to him, (laughs) like that's just absurd. Like, why would you ask him to explain the film? That's your job. Like he's given you all the symbols. He's given you all the pieces. And now it's your turn to interpret it. So I, I love that about him. Um, I love how his work focuses so much on dreams and symbols. You know, I feel like every person watching a David Lynch film will pull something different from it because his films, are they're kind of like tarot cards in a way. Like he just holds up symbols and you read them how you want. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't think that even exists when you're talking about Lynch films. Um, And yeah, he just seems like a cool old guy who hangs out in LA and now he just does his weather report and, you know, is obsessed with coffee and smoking (laughs) 8,000 cigarettes a day and honestly kind of goals for that life, to be honest. And he's a dapper gentleman, Mm -hmm. very well dressed up. Yeah, and still got that hair, you know, however old he is, God love him, he's still got that huge wave of hair it is getting a little messier and a little more wiry as the years go by but he still looks cool as hell i think an icon a hundred percent an icon truly well we're dealing with twin peaks today and my history with it is i watched it when it first aired on telly because i'm i'm that old and i was just so in love with that first season and i loved the second season when I was watching it at the time it aired. And when I came back to it, I couldn't even get through the box set of season two. Oh, God, season two Like a lot of people. Yeah. And apparently, like, I should get my shit together because the very last episode is just amazing. It's when Lynch came back or something. Yeah, the last two, I mean... I, I am not a season two fan either, really, because it feels kind of like a betrayal to Lynch and his vision and what he wants. Well, it was a betrayal, um... It was it was greed more than anything. And, you know, the pressure to announce who killed Laura, he never wanted to do that. 
But yeah, if you can stick with it just until those last two episodes, the payoff is so worth it. And um, have you watched season three, The Return? I was to- I was told to, and I have it. <laughs> uh, but I've not. I it's so there's so much, and yeah, people yeah, say, yeah. It's, "Oh, it's f- forget what whatever you think." This is a perfect Lynch film, and it's really long. So just maybe watch one every few weeks if you like. Uh, but it's it's just daunting. <laughs> it is daunting, and it is. Um... The return is a lot. I mean, it, it for me, it it lacks. It doesn't lack. Let's say it doesn't have the small town cheesiness of the first series. You know, it's not as lighthearted. It's very heavy from the get go. There's, it's even more surreal and bizarre. Um, and I, I, I don't agree with um, whoever told you to take it easy because I think it it does work better if you sit down and do it in one because if you go back to an episode like after a week you're like wait what who is that man holding that thing like why is this man why is this guy sweeping the floor for 16 minutes it's just bizarre um but yeah I loved it so it's good that you've watched fire walk with me before that because the other way around (laughs) doesn't make sense well okay so I watched this one for the first time a couple of years ago. When I came back to it, I was quite excited, knowing that we were going to talk about it like this. And when I looked at the running time, I was like, oh no, it's really <laughs> long. Um, yeah. But I also, after I watched it this time, found loads of duff- different stuff online about all the bits that were missing. And it sort of, a lot of it made sense. A lot of it was just there for fun. And... And I was like, what the hell is this not in here for? Because I could have watched this for three hours, for maybe yeah, even four yeah. hours and been like, yeah, this is great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I don't I don't recall the, the full story of why The Missing Pieces isn't in there. I know it's the Criterion version has it. I have seen The Missing Pieces once and the only thing I can really remember was Chris Isaac fighting the, the, the punch-up scene in the in the police station that lasts for like 20 minutes um but yeah I, I don't know either because it you know it, it would have made it a fully fleshed out thing but I, I don't know if I could handle four hours of firewalk with me honestly <laughs> I don't know if I could well I think we need to split this into two bits really so you got the first 30 minutes of this mm-hmm. film and it's even though it's linked it's completely different from the rest of the film and Mm. i absolutely loved that first 30 minutes i thought it was brilliant i had the best time okay that's the opposite to me (laughs) 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 i um i the the first 30 minutes is my least favorite part of by walk with me um i like it don't get me wrong but I, for some reason, I always forget Kiefer Sutherland is in it, and no hate to Kiefer Sutherland, but some for some reason, like he just pulls me out of it because I'm like, oh shit, that's Kiefer Sutherland, and Chris Isaac, who sang w- Wicked Game, is here too for some reason. Um, but yeah, I, the the first thirty minutes does feel very disconnected, and we never really go back to it apart from a couple, you know, a couple of mentions about um, Chet Desmond, Chet Desmond's yeah. disappearance here and there. So it does feel very like, here's the cold open, and then here's Twin Peaks. And I wonder if it was kind of Lynch's way of trying to weed out the the non-true fans, as it were. See who's stuck Maybe. with it. Maybe. I love how it started with, like, the smash telly. And it's mm. like, right, well, there we go. We're going to... This is... 
really obvious from Lynch for for once. I thought mm-hmm. like, oh, you're just going to have that telly being smashed, right? We're yeah. in cinema land now. Forget all that. Like, you know, I wasn't involved in a lot of that. You know, just putting it out there. Like, so I love the way that started. And I got to admit, when I saw Bowie walk on, I, I just get little tingles. And then I remember, what the hell's going on in this Bowie scene? Yeah. Right? Especially um, without the extra <laughs> bits. Jesus. I know. We, we ain't going to talk about Judy is the question that has plagued mankind. Um, but then I'm not going to say it does get cleared up, but the return, you know, Bowie, God rest his soul, he couldn't be involved with the return because he was very sick. But um, his character, Philip Jeffries, does play a pretty big role in the return. No, that's great yeah, news. Yeah, he, um, he, I'm not going to spoil anything, but he comes back in, shall we say, a very different form. And, um, but the sad thing is they, they, in the return, they replay the scene, but they redub Bowie's American accent because apparently he was really unhappy with it and he really didn't like it, which makes me kind of sad because I thought it was really cute. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, it, you said like uh, having Kiefer Sutherland takes you out of it. When I see Bowie walk in uh, to any movie, mm-hmm. like even Labyrinth, yeah. I'm just like, oh, I can't stop thinking of Bowie, like yeah. as Bowie. Yeah, yeah Bowie's crazy. scene that, they, like you mentioned, Bowie's scene from The Missing Pieces is probably like one of the scariest things, like him screaming on the stairs and then uh, disappearing in the whole like, are you to me? Like that, that gets to me. I wish they'd kept that bit in. I agree. I think that bit is really important to have kept in the film. But, mm-hmm. you know, Lynch Lynch is a man. Are you, you going to argue with Lynch? No, you're just like, all right, Wouldn't you, you do what you want to do. <laughs> um, I must admit, though, like as much as I did enjoy it, when Cooper turns up during that scene uh, and he's doing that really bizarre looking at the cameras and looking at the mm-hmm. feedback of the camera... When he's doing it, I'm so excited that he's there. Just his face. I got real like, yes, like triumphant. Yeah. This is it. We're in it now. And like, I just thought that was a really great way to bring him in. So you have to wait that little bit of time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I Carl McLachlan originally didn't want to be in it, I think, because he was, he was worried about being typecast as Cooper, which is strange to think now because he loves Cooper. Like, and he will always, like talk about cooper and he'll always take the chance to like do a twin peaks reference um but yeah apparently then he didn't really want to be in Firewalk with me so it, it's a treat that he's there regardless um and again i'm not going to spoil the return but the weight makes a little more sense either it is really hard i have to me. watch it now yeah oh. you are you are <laughs> i just could say oh that's 18 hours gone <laughs> gone um <laughs> We get to this um, one year later title card and I find this whole thing with Laura Palmer so incredibly sad. It it really does affect you. And I thought, oh, the second time I watch it, it's not going to be as bad because I know what happens. Mm -hmm. But no, it seemed to get even worse for me. It's so downbeat. Yeah, no, completely. Laura's story is so heartbreaking. Um, Every time I watch it, at the ending, I end up crying like fully open mouth crying like and and i i love that lynch also thinks that like lynch was so enamored with laura and her story that he couldn't bear for twin peaks to be the last of her like he he had to bring her back and i i think laura is maybe if not lynch's best character certainly one of them and i think he would say that too i think 
with James. I don't really dig James as a character. I hate, I hate James. Oh, good, so I'm glad. I wanted to be careful what <laughs> no, I said. No, 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 don't worry, everyone, everyone hates James. <laughs> good, oh, right, okay. So, oh, may, maybe people will be like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very popular, the, the, the Twin Peaks fandom, as it were, all hate James. Cool. I'm glad about that because I've I, I just like oh not this guy again this mm-hmm. uh, like you know when it's like oh this guy's such a sap come yeah. on but my favorite bit of this whole film is where Laura Palmer's like saying to him just just go leave, leave mm. me on that when on the bike and she runs into the woods and her she's like I love you I love you I, you know I hate you go away and then like, yeah. I love you so much and you can see why she's doing it and it, it, that's the bit that really gets me and makes me like go. Ooh. Yeah, Cheryl so Lee's sad. performance, like, I feel like she probably felt a bit bad because the whole of Twin Peaks 1 and 2 is about her, but she's not in it. Like, she's hardly, there's like a couple of flashback scenes and obviously her picture, but she's really not in it. And I feel like seeing Cheryl Lee in Fire Walk with me, I almost feel a bit sad that she wasn't in 1 and 2 more because she's just fantastic and passion and sadness and the complexity of Lorena. Laura's not perfect by any means she's a very flawed character um but that makes us love her that much more because she is imperfect and she's she's a human being it could have been really bad if uh you know she wasn't all up to scratch as an actor it could have been like oh no you know because this is all her Mm-hmm. So it could have been like one of the worst watches. And instead, what we've got here is such a an incredible study on like the effects of abuse. It's heartbreaking yeah. and it yeah, wouldn't yeah, have worked definitely. without her. For sure, 100%. I, I love, I would think Laura is maybe one of my favourite, in, in my top five, definitely top five movie characters of all time, definitely. The reason I've got this film here in a horror section is because I would consider this a horror film, uh, not just because of like a couple of creepy moments, just but just because of the the intensity when you get to the end of the film of what you've been through, that journey that you've been through, that ninety minutes after that first thirty minutes or so is mm-hmm. uh, is a real journey. You you see a character that's already in tethers and just breaking apart and breaking apart and breaking apart so that's the reason Mm -hmm. i've put it here but there are those horror moments do you consider it a horror film oh 100 percent. yeah i mean what what is more horrific in in terms of like human experience what is more horrific than incestual abuse like that is probably the pinnacle of horrific things a human being can go through so i think that in itself makes it a horror film but then when you add um the atmosphere the music the constant droning in the background um bob leland uh the black lodge um the the convenience store it's these are all nightmare moments like the best way i think to describe fire walk with me is it is a living nightmare it is laura's living nightmare and now we are involved in it um and even things like as mundane as a ceiling fan, somehow Lynch in this film, in Fire Walk With Me, has made a ceiling fan into this symbol of um, abuse and made this inanimate object absolutely horrific. Like, I can't even look at a ceiling fan now without thinking, oh my God, I hate that so much. Um, and I would like class most of Lynch's films, with the exception of 
you know, possibly the elephant man, I guess, and the straight story, which I haven't seen, but apparently it is very normal. I think he has horror elements in most of his films, I would say, even though even if they're not strictly horror, but I do think Firewalk With Me is a horror film. I think you're totally right. Like the music as well plays a massive part. Like I remember watching Blue Velvet for the first time and I, I'd finished finished it thinking that's a horror film and yet mm-hmm. nothing uh, from the box for, would point you in that direction, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> weird. Like when you read the synopsis, it, it doesn't sound like that. But when you, I don't know, I just find him a horror guy. He is, and he. I think people can tend to forget because he doesn't focus on you know ghosts and, I mean there are the spirits in the Black Lodge, but in most part for his films he focuses on the evil that human beings do and the evil of like um, America's underbelly. You know you see that a lot in Twin Peaks, especially as this perfect little American town, but underneath, just slightly, if you scratch the surface, it's rotten to the core, and that's horror that's you know real life is horror just as much as zombies and body horror and splatter it's all there you seem to me the fan and which i love but i'm gonna have to ask you a couple of questions that i don't get and i'm wondering wondering if anybody gets them so there is a moment in this where a woman is standing across the road there's a boy wearing a mask next to her and she hands over uh, a, a picture and says to Laura, this would look nice on your wall. Um, I scratched my head. I rewound it. I tried to find, like, what's all this about? Any ideas? So the little boy, he is actually, he was in, he appears in Twin Peaks season one, I think it is. He is actually David Lynch's son. Um, I can't remember his name. but the actor Wow. Who, yeah, <laughs> the actor who plays him, he's got the same, like, he probably doesn't now because he's much older, but at the time he had the same like spiky up hair as his dad. Um, but those two, from what I know, are lodge spirits. So they are spirits from the Black Lodge. Whether they're malicious or not, I'm not entirely sure. I like to think of them as not because I think they're helping Laura because, you know, the little boy, he tells Laura that her dad is in her room, basically. Um which could be argued that it's a bad thing because it opens Laura's eyes to who's abusing her, but then also she did need to figure it out so the abuse would stop. But anyway, that's a different thing, sorry. <laughs> but the painting, I think, is it's it's a portal. It's it's unlocking... It's, it's a way for Laura to access the Black Lodge without dying to get there, which she does have to eventually. Um, but it's a way to open her eyes, open the door physically and metaphorically to see what her father is doing because that's basically the end game and it's it's also a way for the lodge spirits to communicate with her because then we see annie after she hangs the painting up we see annie from season two back in bed with her who says um the good dale is in the lodge and he can't leave so obviously this painting is kind of a doorway between the lodge and our world i think i'm gonna get people in my inbox like no that's wrong (laughs) I, there, there was two ways it could have gone. It could have gone like it, where you would have seen things in it, and I was hoping mm. that that wouldn't happen, and it didn't, uh, luckily. But yeah, I, I thought that like here's an escape for you, and like they they're giving they're giving Laura an escape. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to take it, it's there, and somehow she'll be able to to get there. So yeah, okay, 
that's cool. Definitely. It's also like something that gets to me about this picture is how mundane it is. I think something that Lynch does really well is the evil in banality and like a ceiling fan, but also this picture is just a really boring picture of a door, but it has this aura of unpleasantness to it. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, it's so good. That picture is so nothing, and yet so flipping creepy. I, would I wouldn't never, have it on my wall. Never, There's no way. never, never. That would be burnt immediately. I don't think you can come to this film before seeing everything else. I just don't think it will work because you need some history with Bob before you see this. Or you're like, what the hell is this mm-hmm. guy? No, hundred percent. Um, but it is a prequel. I'm right in this. It's a prequel, although there's flash forwards in places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the last days of Laura Palmer, but you can't. I mean, you could try and watch it without having watched season one and two. You'd be very confused. And I think making Firewalk with me more confusing is not a good idea because it's already <laughs> it's already pretty far up there. But yeah, I mean, you wouldn't. You wouldn't know who Bob is. You wouldn't know who Mike is. You wouldn't know who the Arm is. You wouldn't know what the Black Lodge is. Even Leland, like the whole of season one and two, we've had this setup of Leland and this back and forth on whether he is the killer or or whether he isn't. And to, you know, to just find out pretty much straight away in Firewalk with me that he is takes a lot away from the story. It's like a big, big spoiler, but you're not Mm -hmm. sure what it's a spoiler for even. Exactly, and then it would completely ruin your experience of the the first two seasons because you'd already know that it was Leland. You mentioned it earlier. The music uh, with this, the soundtrack, it's so creepy. It's I just think it's perfect. I'm I I'm obsessed with it. I I love it. I think Angelo Badalamenti really he went full on. I mean, the Twin Peaks original music is so iconic. Um, that he could have just been really lazy and just recycled it again. And it does, you know, the, the Twin Peaks theme does come up a couple of times in the movie, but it's more like, um, it feels like a bit of fan service, which is fine, but it's like, remember this guy? It's like this song you loved. And he could have just done that the whole way through, but he didn't. He made a whole new soundtrack. Um, and the so- some of the songs on it, like The Pink Room, which is the song that plays um, in the nightclub. When- oh, man. amazing that song makes me want to go like to that disgusting club and get fucked up to be honest um there's also the this a song called on the track on the track listing called the black dog runs at night which is just horrible it's just like a weird discordant like just beats and then someone just saying the black dog runs at night over and over um it suits the film perfectly because it's so unsettling and 
it's also very different from the ambience of the original Twin Peaks soundtrack, which I, if I remember rightly, there were no vocals in any of those songs. And then this soundtrack does have a couple of songs with vocals, so they very they feel very separate. And this one feels a lot darker, a lot edgier. Um, the tracks feel more dangerous than the the jazzy style of the Twin Peaks soundtrack, which at times is very lighthearted and very cute. It's easy to listen to. Some of the songs on Fire Walk With Me are not easy to listen to. Well, that one you mentioned in the club, that's something else. Like, I love that it was realistic in the version that I saw. I know uh, there was one version that came out where you could clearly hear everyone chatting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so glad that you can't and they have to do, do this, yeah. the subtitles for that. That's so incredible to watch mm-hmm. that whole thing play out. And just, we've all been to, to clubs like that or out with friends like that and where things have like stepped over the line and people have just got totally fucked and are yeah. doing anything. It's gone too it's far. Like, yeah, yeah, it's just like, oh no, maybe I should have gone home 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and oh, yeah. I think it links so well to the bit where Laura is out and that drug deal's going down mm-hmm. at night time and then she's so she's so fucked out of her head she's laughing like someone's get, got shot it doesn't phase her yeah. you know and yet you can tell inside it does but it, she's too fucked to even know mm-hmm. and oh, it just the whole way it, it it crashes together like that it just I love it so much I never noticed it before Just Laura's descent is, like we said, it's one of the saddest things ever put to film, to be honest. And I think without, I don't want to say anything without giving away too much of you know, the return, <laughs> but the descent of Laura is so important that it it literally changes everything as we know it in some ways. And this film really helps you to understand that um, in how... <laughs> I can't say I'm trying really hard not to say it. It helps you. <laughs> I can't it. wait to see it. I tell you what, I, 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 I'm now like, all right, okay, I'm gonna just definitely stick with do it. This. Just stick, just stick with it. <laughs> That's all I can say. Okay, I've heard there's one episode in it actually, which is just like like a, a sort of music piece, and a, like you can watch it separate from anything else, like a piece of art on film. Yeah, I think it's off the top of my head. I can't remember the episode number, but it's entirely in black and white and it's it has starts with nine inch nails playing which is already i'm obsessed because nine inch nails one of my favorite bands and it for the most part it is entirely silent and it is one of his most mind-blowing pieces of film like very good (laughs) this is going to be difficult i found one thing but where does this film fail if at all and I, I like to do this because we got to knock these like complete amazing artists off a pedestal every oh, now yeah. and again. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the only thing I could pick out of this whole film that I, I sort of, oh God, really, is that some of the, these girls are meant to be 16 or 17 and they're clearly not. Um, but that's, I mean, if that's as much as I could like go, no, 
I think that's pretty good. Could you find anything? Yeah, I mean, again, like you said, the fact their age, and not only their age and the fact that they don't look their age, but the fact that they're meant to be 16 and there is huge amounts of sexual violence in this film, which, you know, Lynch does this a lot lynch as a woman lynch films aren't always hot aren't always easy to watch and i know that he's received criticism on that i personally don't think it's a you know a reflection on anything other than the fact that the man wants to present realistic horror and it works but i know a lot of people aren't happy with how violent fire walk with me is towards teenage girls and how explicit some of the scenes are with them and that's i think that's a valid criticism um for me James just like I hate James so much it fails it fails for me there um not because I don't want to see James I well I don't want to see James but there are other characters that I would rather have seen in this film like Audrey for example I would have um I would have liked to see Audrey come back for some episodes or I know that we don't really see the Twin Peaks police department because there's no reason to see them in Firewalk with me but I would have liked to see, you know, Hawk or Andy. Anyone but oh, James, yeah. really, to be honest. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think... Yeah. it. I heard it wasn't very popular when it was first released. I think it was pretty much panned, to be honest. Um, and for, for other people, the failings might be that it is completely bizarre. And for anyone who enjoyed Twin Peaks, it's also kind of like a fuck you. Because I think... Lynch made this film as a kind of middle finger to the people who who wanted you know they wanted a soap opera from Twin Peaks they wanted a reveal they wanted things tied up cleanly and that was never his vision and I think with Firewalk with me he was like oh you want to you want to see what how bizarre I can go and how violent and how nasty well I'm gonna go there I love that we've not even scratched the surface of this film (laughs) I see this in a similar way to as the way I see the X-Files films. Um, mm-hmm. But here's the thing. With the X-Files films, I imagine you could watch them without having watched the series. I, mm. I think you can watch them completely out of context. Is there any way that you could watch this out of context, not knowing? Is there, Could you actually go to the cinema not knowing about this and then get something out of it? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm tempted to just say no. Like like I mentioned before, you would have no clue who half the characters are. You would have no clue about the lore. But then again, a lot of David Lynch movies do throw you in at the deep end. I'm like Mulholland Drive, for example. That doesn't come with any backstory. That doesn't come with any lore. Um, and that's still True. a very very enjoyable experience. I think if you were a fan of surrealism that you could maybe piece it together um but i wouldn't like to try let's just say that <laughs> so i think that first 30 minutes fucks it in a way for for you hitting this out of context because you must be like if you're an hour in you'll be like what yeah. what's <laughs> going on here like the way it opens up is sort of like a comedy as well like when it goes to to lynch at the desk shouting he's yeah. so loud it's like oh what what am i what, what's this so i i i would just think i would be at the cinema watching this out of context and just you know after an hour just mentally just give up yeah definitely so, i think if it, if it started with laura you could maybe 
maybe it could be a standalone if you just ignored the fact that there had been no character development. But yeah, the first 30 minutes is, is hard to ignore in that case. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> this is so weird. Thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Um, this movie is probably in my top ten favorite of all time. So I was very excited. Wow. To yeah, love it. And what a belter of a score this is. And would you believe I was looking in all the unobvious places, so I just couldn't find it. I wish I'd just gone straight to Spotify, because it's all there. Angelo Badalamenti simply knocks it out of the park. It's gone for six. This is incredible. There is still a jazzy hangover from the series in tracks like The Pine Float. And the music choice here is creepy in places as well. Uh, especially, you know, when they look at that dead body at the beginning and they find the letter T under the fingernail. So it can really raise the tension in a traditional scary way as well. But this soundtrack works best for me, though, when it throws in a lot of uncanny, odd stabs, unusual key changes, a little avant-garde playing when they go jazz, that touch of whining cello. It's incredible. I think Moving Through Time right now is my favourite track. I love it. I just love it. But, I mean, there are negatives. I don't really enjoy the tracks where there's a bit of dialogue clipping, uh, like in a real indication. I don't really dig that one. In fact, I find it a little bit annoying. But it is a minor blemish. This is a stunning, stunning soundtrack. And it's there for free to stream on Spotify. Where can you watch this film? Well, HBO Max and the Criterion Channel, they're streaming this one right now for free in the USA. And as for the UK, no, forget about it. You just got to buy it as a Blu-ray from Criterion and it's going to cost you around 25 smackers. And finally, as for podcasts, if you want in-depth, then you're going to have to head over right now for some deep analysis at Diane. Entering the Town of Twin Peaks podcast. They put out their episode in April 2017. And that, my friends, that is Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Welcome, listeners of Earth. As I record this, the southeast of England is going through heatwave number two. 
and I've had enough of that shit. So honestly, my sweat glands are sweating. I would cry, but I'd be crying actual flames. So what better place than to be up here amongst the stars on the Walla Not Wella mothership? But before we go all intergalactic on your bottoms, there was only one movie that I couldn't locate for the horror part of this show, and that was something called Evil Dead Trap 2. Now, I haven't seen the first one, Evil Dead Trap. haven't seen that either, but the reviews are really good for both of them. They're Japanese. It's a psychological and psychosexual horror, apparently. I really want to see it, but I am sure. I've just got this feeling that a label like 88 Films is going to put them out as a set at some point soon. And when that happens, they'll be mine. But that's it with horror. We're not up here in the vacuum of space for nothing. We don't do horror up here. We do sci-fi, we do fantasy. And for 1992, you can expect superheroes. You can expect time travellers, ghosts, genetically modified and technologically advanced human beings. And of course, bloody cartoon genies. We're going to have to pick through them all right now, so let's be having you. Let's do it. So, all the above being said, we've got ten films to choose from. And we're going to begin with a couple of scummy piles of doo-doo. So, number ten to number one. Here we go. At number ten, this month's number ten, yes. It's Intruders, which is an incredibly dated miniseries. That is just way, way too stretched out and way, way, way too talky. Alien abduction viewing should always be a lot of things, a lot of different, amazing, exciting things. Never boring. Slightly better, but still pants, was Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Think of the adventure we could have together. Yeah, we can go to Frontierland. Don't be afraid. It's me, Nick. You want to sit down? If not for Alice... We're the only people that can give you your life back. I'd be lost forever. You have a face again. You don't have any body makeup, do you? Dropped about 10 pounds. But I'd look great naked. <laughs> Alice! Go away! She saw me through it all. I got him. Nick, I love you! Chevy Chase. Morning. Morning. Daryl Hannah. Boy, how am I gonna tell my mom about this? Tell her you met a guy. Could be serious. He's transparent. Memoirs of an Invisible Man. A John Carpenter film. Now, John Carpenter directed this, but if it wasn't written on the screen at the beginning of it, and I guess with it being a well-known fact that this is his actual mainstream shitty one, then I would have just had no idea it was him. Chevy Chase is in this and I, I know that he had some sort of hand in it actually getting made but again it's an odd casting choice uh, the writers seem to have handed in the first draft and everybody just went do you know what that's great somebody gave them some cash sight unseen they did a runner and you're left with this it is broken and it feels like nobody involved cares at all all on the production and you shouldn't get that from a film it's autopilot bullshit it's the worst following on from this we have nemesis and i could honestly give two shits about the robot human hybrid cop conspiracy sci-fi action thriller genre i don't really care too much for it because terminator's done it but it is set in 2027 
which I quite enjoyed. I'd like to know what's going to be happening soon. And at least the effects attempt to replicate those things that you recognise from other films like Terminator. And remember, Terminator was already eight years old at this point. It does give it a gritty, retro-futuristic feel, but as I say, the story's a mishmash of 20 other films that came out either the decade before it or even longer ago, and the amount of Danish-American accents on display here grated on me. After, like, the first ten minutes, it was all very confusing. What the filmmakers wanted me to believe is God knows. Is God knows business. Timescape is next, and this one actually did play at the 1991 Black Sunday Film Festival. The transfer on YouTube that I saw isn't great. Jeff Daniels stars in this one, and it is a time travel caper that had been set up better before, and also set up better since, but it still feels like a family-friendly film. It's cosy enough to earn its pass, uh, so it's sort of middling in my chart. But they're all the middling and terrible ones. Now we're going to hit the 6 out of 10 point. And I've got to say, all these ones, if you haven't seen them, definitely right on your list. They're all worth a watch. But first of all, some may say that this one should actually be a 10. Uh, people love it. But I did find it a really difficult watch when I recently came back to it. Not just because it's for kids. I'm talking about Disney's Aladdin. Now, I do not know if I am actually down with the message that the story is trying to deliver to the viewer. Not now I've got this much life experience behind me, but I will admit I did love it when I first caught it at the cinema. was 30 years ago, though. Crazy. Crazy. At number five, on the sci-fi corner chart, it's Free Jack. Now, I was on the fence about this one until some actors entered a nightclub, and it was set in 2009. And in 2009, what are they playing in the nightclub? They're playing Jesus Jones. And at that point, I was totally in. The plot of this thing is a time-travelling body swap thing. It's beyond convoluted. It was ridiculous fun at some points, and at others, it was just simply ridiculous. But, you know, sometimes that'll do it for me. That was Free Jack. And don't get them confused, please. They all sound quite similar. Next up is Fortress. And in this one, it's Christopher Lambert. A few years on now from Highlander. And in this, he and his missus are trying to have a child. Uh, when dystopian rules say you are not allowed to have a child. Uh, or a second child, should that be. And they get caught. And then they're sent to this massive underground facility, which is inescapable. So what are they going to do? What's this film about? Alright, I'll tell you. They escape. This one, though, I've seen it a few times over the years. It's still a total romp. I want to say romp. It is really good fun. It's not believable in any way. But it is more believable than the next film. And the next film is Universal Soldier. And I love that this one is not believable in any way. The stupider it gets, the more I liked it. It's totally brilliant in places. We have a super soldier film here that somehow until this month I had missed. And what a bloody great day it was. It's the best I've ever seen Dolph Lundgren as well. I loved it. Alright, maybe Rocky Four. Maybe Rocky Four. At number two though, it's The Muppet Christmas Carol. And this is a perfectly crafted ghostly Christmas tale for all the family and of course you already all know that because 
It's just bloody Muppet genius. Everyone's seen it. It's on telly all the time. Beginning to end, I think Michael Caine is being rather grumpy and being rather brilliant in his portrayal as someone that's rather grumpy. And it was my number one for a long, long time until I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this next film a go. I don't normally do superhero films, but, but fuck it. Let's give it a go. But before we get there, before we get there, here's the top 10 rundown. So at number 10, Intruders. Number 9, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Number 8 is Nemesis. 7, Timescape. At number 6, we've got Aladdin. At number 5, Free Jack. At number 4, Fortress. At number 3, we have Universal Soldier. And at number 2 is the Muppet Bloody Christmas fucking Carol. So at number 1... In my 1992 science fiction and fantasy rundown, and believe me, I was as shocked about this as you will be, it is Batman Returns. And for this one, I had to get someone that loves Batman involved. It's the one, it's the only, a musician that plays guitar. He's Paul Chanter. He's a regular guest to the podcast. Now, Paul is the reason most of us get up in the morning. He is the reasons why caravans have awnings. He is the reason why Da Vinci did drawings. He is a legend, and I am honoured to have him on the show here today with me. And speaking for you, it's Paul Chanter. We're going deep on Batman Returns. Sewers of Gotham, a new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! From the rooftops of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. she can sink her claws into. You can't into a girl like me. He plots a foul reign of destruction. My dear penguins, thanks to Batman, the time has come to punish all of them! Paul, welcome to Sci-Fi Corner. It's lovely to be here. I don't think I've been here before. It's amazing. I love the way you got the place kitted out. <laughs> Thanks, mate. It's uh, the Walla Not Wella mothership. That's where we are right now. Um, air cons are always on. So, um, we're talking Batman Returns. And yes. I hadn't seen this since it first came out. I really? initially thought, that's ah, not a patch on that first one. Where's, where's Prince's soundtrack? And re-watching it, I was floored. I was blown away. I couldn't believe it was that good. I rewound little bits. I just had the best time. I can't believe that people don't talk about this film more. It's amazing. Right. Um, do you like it? 
I, 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 yes, and I think you're in the wrong circles because people do talk about this film, but they argue about this film. Oh, right. Okay, give me your history with Batman Returns and tell me what they argue about, please. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll get onto that. Right. Um, I think... I don't remember if I saw it opening weekend, but I'd be very surprised if I didn't because that was the kind of thing I did then. It was like, you have to be there on the, the Friday night. <laughs> I saw it with a group of, uh, a group of friends one of whom just didn't get Batman. So he found the whole thing pointless and laughable, which just fucking wound me up the whole way through. <laughs> He's going, what, penguins with rockets on them? What the fuck is going on? I'm like, will you shut the fuck up? It's Batman, shut up. I'd ke- yeah, so I'd kept an eye on the making of Batman Returns because, you know, right up until its release, I'd, I'd literally been first in line on the first showing of the first day of release of Batman 89. I was the first one at the door. I should not have just nipped down to KFC to get something to eat because by the time I got back, the fucking queue was massive. Um, so yeah, I was, I was all over this like stink on shit. I was yeah, I was in from in before they even announced that it was coming out. It's like if they make another one, I'm there. You know, Brilliant. so yeah, I love that. I, yeah, the first Batman, uh, I watched it a couple of times at the cinema, and it mm. was one of those things where I would also because of the film. I had both soundtracks. There was two. There was the the score, and then mm. there was Prince's one. And yeah. I loved them both, uh, and it, it it was just this whole thing. I wasn't really into the comics. Uh, I wasn't really in t- at the time uh, with early Batman TV stuff. I just thought that this film was like futuristic looking. I loved what um, just all the sets. I loved all that stuff. Tim Burton was like not on my radar at the time so this was just like magical and yeah so I I just really love that first one the second one as I say in and out yeah it's all right, Uh, and then just moved on Um, maybe I've got a problem with myself then that I've had it so underrated for so long because I just thought this was another box to tick rewatching it like I can't remember it so let's put it on again but yeah. No. Now I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but I put all this down to Tim Burton. I think this one looks more Tim Burton than the first one. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah. But oh, well, good, because like I could really see Tim Burton's vision all over the place here. Yes. Uh, including just like all the stuff going on in the periphery of your vision, sort of thing. So if you're not watching what Batman's doing. And you're just watching a, a villain dance around the, down the street somewhere. Yeah, it, everything just looks so wonderfully toyy. I don't know how to describe yep. it, but no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and it, I'm getting chills talking about it because it was such amazing cinema. I'm just kicking myself that I didn't get to enjoy it at the big screen like right, you did because right. I was just like, oh, whatever. I want to listen to Metallica or whatever. Well, I was I was doing both. Um, it's it's definitely like you said it's definitely more tim burton than the first one i think what you mean by when you say it's more toyy thank you is that it has more stripes and spirals on the art direction so that's just tim burton completely it's it's definitely darker it's more monotone like the stripes and spirals i've actually watched batman just for just for shits and giggles i've watched batman returns in black and white and it looks fucking amazing. It's st- it just looks great because it's 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 pretty much black and white anyway. Like for for the listeners, 
Paul is currently sat with a picture of Catwoman behind him. And you look at that, it's pretty much black and white, except for her lips. Bright, Bright red. Yeah. She looks, I mean, she's been made pale, so she is black and white, you know. It's, 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 um, it's so design-wise, it's just, it's so much more Burton than the first one. Um, the designs are way more his aesthetic, you know, like the circus troupe. It's just, it's pure Tim Burton. You look at yeah. every single one of those. And again, he gets to, the other thing that makes it kind of a, a more of a Tim Burton vehicle, arguably he's kind of made Batman characters, he's kind of pulled them into his world rather than him stepping into Batman world. Kind right. Of but he has this trope of strangers in strange lands. You know, he kind of, he did it in Batman, he did it in Edward Scissorhands, Nightmare Before Christmas, Sleepy Hollow, Batman Returns, a lot of it, and a lot of his early, and in my opinion, his, his best work, um, feature that kind of through line in the plot where there's a loner or an outcast trying to find where they fit in with the world that they're in, you know. And you've got that, you've got that with a penguin in this, you know. He's like, I, I just want to find out who my parents were, and and then you've got the Selena Carlos. She suddenly becomes this new person. Right now, this new person has to fit in this city and, you know, the other freaks that run around here, you know. And and he he does um, explore that that the, the, in, in a lot of his films, including this one. And, yeah, and the darker tone, which upset a lot of, a lot of parents and, and it upset my parents. Oh, I bet it did. Jesus, yes. Um, there's, a, there's a really good piece of footage somewhere where some little kid's been invited on like some American talk show and they're like, you saw the new Batman film at the weekend, what do you think? He's going, I thought it was very disturbing. It's like, oh mate, you've, you've totally been told what to say in your face. <laughs> yeah, the underlying and, and not so subtle sort of sexual innuendos didn't sit too well with middle American parents who uh, sort of hadn't read anything like The Killing Joke or The Dark Knight Returns or and were probably brought up on, you know, repeats of the TVs, the 60s TV series, and possibly still expected a, a bit more Adam West with their Batman, you know, rather than the sort of pervy, black bile, dribbling penguin and the very, very sexualized Catwoman that they got. And the Batwoman, Batman who just cracks the fuck out of everybody and hardly says a word. <laughs> I, I like it's called that. Batman Returns, right? But he doesn't say anything. He doesn't need to. You know? <laughs> no, no. That, that, that's the thing. Like, I, I love his take on Batman. So understated. And yet mm. it's so kick-ass. Like, the fight with the Catwoman is just so fucking brilliant. It's so great. And it's mm. on a, a series of roofs that, like, don't really make a lot of sense like the no. way the roofs are all sort of built and things like that. But then this is a Tim Burton world. So exactly. like you say, like it, it's like Tim brought Tim Burton's brought all these people into Tim Broughton. He's uh, Tim's brought in all these people. But what I would like to say, I when it opened up, like and this go back to your black and white thing, mm. I on my twenties um and thirties episode loved Metropolis, loved it. And I could right. see that in in like that intro shot and yeah. i just thought all oh, right i mean this is not what i remember this is more art housey and that's not what i got with this i got a far more sort of dark comic 
feel from this film than I did Art House. But at the yeah. same time, it really goes against everything that kids would want from Batman, I, I would think. Because there's, A, not a lot of Batman. And as you say, mm. th there is real weird perviness to it. The only sort of stuff I could see kids really enjoying is like the rubber ducky, you know, where, where he's <laughs> going up on a rubber ducky. But then again, it's the penguin with this green bile shit coming out of him. Yeah. Looking yeah. like he does. So gross and disfigured. Um, I just can't see that this is for kids at all. And just before he comes out of the ground on that penguin, he's just blown about 30 people into the air and he's destroyed a whole fancy dress party just blown everybody up it's definitely um more of a tim burton for i think that's possibly where well, it isn't it's not even possibly it is the reason why he didn't do batman forever the studio was like no we're not we're not having that again was this a success i think yeah i think technically it was a success but it, i don't think it, because it didn't do or outdo what batman 89 did what could it was deemed yeah exactly you know i think i think batman 89 at that time was the biggest film in history i think it's just breaking records everywhere i just remember yeah that. i mean that 89 was the, the the year of batman it was just everywhere that symbol was everywhere you can get away from it i think because he put his own personal stamp on it which is you know which is only fair if you you know because if you're going to go back to a character for a second time round or something you, you've got to feel personally invested like why would I why would I want to go back and do this I need to find an angle that attracts me okay well then you know I like the whole loner thing so let's explore that and you know and the, and the thing with there not being a huge amount of Batman in it that, that was that was by design Michael Keaton and Tim Burton were like this guy is Batman we know who Batman is we've done his origin thing and, and Michael Keaton was saying I don't need to say that line take that line out I don't need to say that I don't need to say anything here so they took loads of lines out just to make him like a walking statue just like he just turns up cracks the shit out of a few people and says you know one or two things and then gets in his car and fucks up <laughs> he kills someone he kills uh, he kills a baddie in this right uh, he ki yeah see so well I was going to get onto that later, but oh. uh, he, he he kills a couple people at least in this film. Uh, you could argue he kills a couple people in this film, which that's the big argue. That's the thing people argue about this film is that you know you get people saying it's not my Batman, you know, because Batman doesn't kill. But if Batman throws somebody down a hole who is carrying their own bomb. Is it their own fault? They shouldn't have had a bomb on them. You know, like if Batman kicks you in another room and your own hand grenade explodes in your hand, is it your fault? Is you know that's the <laughs> that's the that's the sort of uh, you know the nitty gritty that people get down to in like chat rooms and stuff, arguing about the merits of which is. What, the what best do you mean, people? Batman. This is you, right? It's not. No. Do you know what I read it? I don't. I, I used to. I used to. But then I thought, you know, <laughs> there's a there's a great <laughs> quote that I won't say. Um, but there's no, yeah, there's there's no point arguing on the internet because <laughs> uh, everybody loses. You know? Everybody's a loser. <laughs> Talking of losers, the penguin. Um, so <laughs> Danny DeVito, he's almost. I I would say he almost steals this for me. Uh, right. I'm I'm just Team Catwoman. 
completely. Right. But, yeah. Like he's so good. He's so good in this. The thing is, I don't know anything about the casting or anything like that. But one thing I do know that he wasn't the first choice. But he's so perfect. Like, um, is there anything you want to say about this performance? Do like fans like this uh, this penguin because? In the comics and also in the the sixties series, he's not like that at all. No, not at all. And I think this is what I said earlier on. You know, it's kind of um, a lot of people shout, you know, that's not my Batman, and a lot of people shout, that's not that's not the Penguin. You know, because he's like like we said, dribbling black stuff everywhere. And but then you could say the same for like Christopher Nolan's take on Batman. You know, it may veer a bit too close to being 007 for some people. But yeah, Danny DeVito, I think when you said that other people were considered, I think I might be wrong. I don't know. I should have looked this up. But I think the only two I can think that were considered for anything were Dustin Hoffman and possibly Robin Williams. I think. Wow. I'm not sure. Okay. But I think at that one point Robin crazy. Williams was lobbying for the, the Riddler in something. But um, That I can see. That I can yeah. See. I always thought, bizarrely, I don't know why, I just thought that um, Danny DeVito got the part of the Penguin because he was really good mates with Jack Nicholson. I just thought that was probably something that kind of came up and... Carries weight. Yeah, you, should, you should do it, you know. Because like, if, I, if I had earned 60 million from doing something <laughs> and, I, and I knew a, the potential was coming up for some, a friend of mine, to earn that much for something, I would say to them, you should give it a go. You might earn a bit of cash. You know? Yeah. Well, they're saying that. I think Jack Nicholson earned about 50 million from Batman Returns. So even weird. though he's not even in it. <laughs> but yeah, so <sighs> Danny DeVito was a penguin. I think he was described in some newspaper at the time, a review, as uh, looking like a testicle with arms. <laughs> um, which uh, he was deeply offended about. And uh, I think he said he was never going to do an interview for that paper again, or whatever it was. And like there was a group of kids who visited visited the set because it was like yeah go and see Batman go see the Penguin and he because he turned out full costume and scared the shit out of everybody. <laughs> but the the look of Danny DeVito's Penguin is Tim Burton's concept. You know Danny DeVito took that right okay he's going to look like that this shit running out of his mouth and I'll go with it. The stuff running out of his mouth was just like. Um, Apparently, uh, it's the it's the embodiment of how twisted he is inside. It's just coming out. This literal black bile is coming out because he's so twisted and he hates everybody because he was, you know, fucked over as a, as a as a kid. You know, uh, it's a million like you said, it's a million miles away from um, Burgess Meredith on the TV show, right? You know, the thing and you know, with the top hat and the cigarillo and all this kind of stuff. The Penguin at, at the time of Batman Returns, I think, was was ripe for reinvention. You could you can't stray too far with the Joker. You know, the Joker is the Joker. But then what Jack Nicholson did with the Joker, the only thing to compare that to was Cesar Romero back in the right. '60s TV series. You know, and Cesar Romero couldn't even be bothered to shave his tash off to play the Joker. So, and you got Jack Nicholson with like so much. <laughs> I know it's fucking. Annoying. Once you know, it's like I can't help seeing this tash covered in makeup. Um, but yeah, Jack Nicholson had like the makeup with the perma smile and all this kind of thing, and was perfect for it at the time. And the Penguin, yeah, it's like, well, nobody, nobody really, given you know, like like the Joker, Catwoman, Penguin, Riddler. That's the top four, really. 
those are top tier bat villains you know from the rogues gallery or whatever but i think the character like his 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 doubt like the penguin oswald cobblepot's downfall <laughs> from uh you know from being like in in gotham in 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 the story he's kind of he's loved at the beginning because he's this underdog that everybody's like oh this is an amazing story of this guy who's sort of come up from fuck all literally come out of the sewer and you know but then he turns into this reviled politician you know he's running for mayor and he's really pervy and it's not so far-fetched because like you know when everybody's hearing the leaked recordings of him saying about the wretched pinhead puppets of gotham and all this yeah. That's that's not how many times have re- leaked recordings fucked someone over in a, since <laughs> so Batman right. Returns was leaked. Yeah, since Batman Returns was released, you know, it's like even before they're like, well, even before this, well, you had Watergate and stuff yeah. like that, you know. So, his his his. Uh, I think for me, I I like this Penguin. I I like the portrayal. Um, could you do it differently? Yes. Ask Colin Farrell. His Penguin in the Batman, very different. Still cool, but I wanted to see more of it. Um, and there's little nods in there to the Penguin and Burgess Meredith and stuff. Even in you know in the Batman, there's 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 nods to the '60s thing in there. I haven't seen it yet. You have to kind of you have to know and be ah right and very good, very good, you know. But it's a very different take on it. And I think I think that's the only way you can make these things work because it's like. You know, if you saw The Dark Knight and Heath Ledger, right, Heath Ledger's playing the, playing the Joker and he just does what Jack Nicholson did, you'd be like, well, he's just doing a pressure of Jack Nicholson. You know, if Colin Farrell came on and did exactly what Danny DeVito did, you'd be like, well, he's, he's doing that. These things are almost there, like begging to be reinterpreted. You've got like, what is it, 80 years of Batman now? Yeah. So you could, you can pick, you know, like which which version you want to... And it's so varied. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, yeah, one of the questions you asked later is, you know, we'll get onto that, but you, you can pick and choose. So when people say it's not my Batman, right, we'll pick another one. Yeah, two of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, either that or watch Hellraiser 6, you know? Ooh, Shut yeah. up. <laughs> not my pinhead. <laughs> no, well, fair enough, I, I will go with that. Okay, hey, Catwoman. So here we go. The reason why she is my background and everything like that business is that it takes me, and I imagine everyone else. <laughs> I've made up my own ending to this sentence. I don't know why. It takes, it takes me, me apparently like approximately five <laughs> seconds to get a Woody when I look at a picture of her. <laughs> it takes me a good minute to focus uh, on what's going on on the screen after I see her. I've never fancied Michelle Pfeiffer before as a, uh, growing up. Mm. Um, no, I, I was completely wrong. Like th- this is <laughs> so sexy, so ridiculous, taking it to this other level that I, I, I can't even explain. I'm lost for words at mm. how to describe that suit. I know she hated it. She didn't have a good time in it. She couldn't breathe very well yeah, and yeah. things like that. I know a little about the law because it's such a legendary outfit, but. It's so iconic, and this is one of the main reasons why I think, what the hell have I not returned to this film before? Because apart from all this sexiness, just forget about that. What (laughs) an incredible character. What an incredible set of fights scene she's in. What dialogue. This is just absolute 
like cinema. Mwah, I love it. I love everything about <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer in this so much. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you are that hot on it as I am, but thank God they didn't go with Annette Benning is all I say. <laughs> You've done your homework a bit then. <laughs> or um Sean Young. Oh yeah. One of, well, yeah, one of them Sean went Young. in. It. She was it she was in on that. Yeah, yeah. She, she went she the one who went in and sort of climbed a, climbed around on the Tim Burton That's it, desk she had her own and, outfit yeah, made. Like, wow, that's okay. Um no, a little bit disturbed, I think. Um, no, Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, it's just iconic, isn't it? Now you know it's when it came out. It was just such a whoa. That's we've never seen anything like that. Um, and it's it's exactly what I said a minute ago. It's it's yeah. It looks like Catwoman, but it's different. You know, like yeah, that looks like the Penguin, but it's different. Um, and even with the first film, that looks like Batman, but it's different. The design of Catwoman is just pure Tim Burton like the stitching is something he's carried from early work like Frank and Weenie right through to Sally and The Nightmare Before Christmas and even on from that Um, and Michelle Pfeiffer kind of I knew her from I knew her she's great mates Um, (laughs) from my youth (laughs) I'd I'd seen her in uh, I think the only thing really I'd seen her in before that was Witches of Eastwick Right. Um, yeah, it's great. And so I didn't. I didn't really know what to expect, but she just nailed this new variant of Catwoman that sort of and 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 it placed her rightfully next to kind of previous portrayals like um, I think it's Julie Newmar from like uh, the TV series. You know, like right. that's Catwoman. And then you know you hadn't had a Catwoman for however long, you know, like 20 years. And then she comes along and just does this. And then set the benchmark then for people like Anne Hathaway and Zoe Kravitz to try, for them to try and reach, and arguably succeeded or failed, depending on your point of view, Dark Knight Rises. Oh, how very? Um, no, we don't. All right, we don't, don't talk about that. that. Okay. We, don't, we don't mention that pile. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, like, you're talking about the benchmark, there's like... <laughs> she's right, right, down, out the way. But she's she plays uh, Selena Kyle and Catwoman, delightfully disturbed. And I think she was I think she was quoted at the time, like on release, that um, there are four distinct personalities that she's playing when she's playing Selena Kyle. She's not just like the Selena Kyle and then there's Catwoman. She's got four different characters that she's playing. And I think you can see a lot of them at the end when she's Catwoman, but then she becomes all weak and weird when she's talking to Batman when he takes his mask off. Yeah. Um, so I just, it, it's an absolute sort of home run. She took it and just ran with it. And like, yeah, the costume was a fucking nightmare. She had to be talped and dropped into the fucking thing and they had to throw it away at the end of the day. I think they used about 60-something costumes just to make the film. Collector's items. Yeah, well, I think they just destroyed them because they were fucked by the end of the day. Um, And I dread to think who's trying to collect the PVC costume from Michelle Pfeiffer. (laughs) Mm. Um... (laughs) But yeah, so she took all that and like the nightmare of doing it, the nightmare of wearing the costume and all this. I guess maybe she 
use that as fuel you know i know that like i've seen interviews with michael keaton where he said like he's he's covered in rubber he's looking at michelle Pfeiffer. she's covered in rubber and he's just got to watch her lips and like because he couldn't hear a fucking thing and he's like right she's she finished she right it's like she's finished and then he's like right i gotta say my line i'm batman and she's looking at him like right, is he is he finished <laughs> you wow. know because they, they couldn't hear fuck all nightmare and like you said about the fight scenes as well it's amazing how she can switch like this because there's a bit where she, Batman punches her square in the face. Favourite scene. Yeah, or, and she it. says, how could you? I'm a woman. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. And she kicks him right in the stomach. <laughs> that's like, that's so Batman and Catwoman. And obviously the scene where they land on the floor and they talk about, you know, uh, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. A kiss can be deadlier if you mean it, you know. And, and that is just, that's, that's the Catwoman and Batman sort of um, sparks that people have tried to get since, you know, like Anne Hathaway and Christian Bale, yeah, you tried to get a little bit of that right. sort of energy, that chemistry. Mm, didn't quite get it. Did they get it in the Batman? I think they got it a little bit in the Batman. I think there's a there's a bit of it there, definitely. But it's not, it's not anywhere near just that one exchange in Batman Returns. So the rest of it, one of my favorite scenes is when they're at the... the um, the, the the mask ball and they're the only ones not wearing masks yep. and then when they kind of twig who the other one is and he just pulls her really tight and she says do we have to start fighting now it's just so it's so good so good yep. there's so many bits I love about it like when he just says to her you've got a kind of a dark side don't you and she says no darker than yours Bruce it's like they they know they know they're kind of dancing around each other and then when they're not dancing around each other, they're dressed up and beating the shit out of each other. <laughs> you know? And it's like, I, I love it. Their dynamic is great. It's great. So good. Yeah, I can't disagree. As I said, I was absolutely blown away by this. And I recommend it to anyone listening that is like not a dabbler in these things. If you're not a Batman, like, Finishiado, no, Fishnetiado, fan if you're not a batman fan this <laughs> this is for you this is for you i would say start here why not why the, the why the flip not i i as i blown away but who cares what i think i'm not the batman finished uh, fan <laughs> you are sir so question the big one who oh, is the bear? yeah Who's the best Batman? Uh, see, that's 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 an episode in itself. I think, you know, that that would be a full episode. They sit and argue the merits of, you know, whoever. Um, for me, it it changes since we're talking about Batman Returns. Michael Keaton is exactly the guy for Tim Burton's take on Batman and Bruce Wayne. For me, Ben Affleck was a perfect, physically accurate depiction of Batman, that warehouse scene in um, Batman vs. Superman. Amazing. But, sadly, the films that he was in just didn't service him well, didn't give him the material with which to shine, you know? I get that. Robert Pattinson is good, but I need to see more. He was very understated, and, and when it's understated, it's almost like... Eh, 
is he doing anything? Or is he being very fucking clever? I'm not sure. You know, it's like when you go to an art gallery and it's just like, you know, a plain white canvas with a blob of blue tack in the middle and you go, hmm, is that high art or am I having the piss taken out of me? You know, it's like... Um, but, you know, Matt Reeves brought in the detective angle with that film. So that that's something that hadn't really been done before, fully explored. Christian Bale was great and my at the time my personal choice for Batman before he was in ca right. even cast when I went to see Rain of Fire I came out of that and said somebody should cast that guy as Batman he'll be amazing and I think it was like a month or so later he was in the running for it I was like yeah see I should be I should be getting the big bucks but some people like I said some people think those films are a bit too close to 007 to be like true Batman movies it's almost like a Bond crazy type thing what a crazy thing to say but you know, I think we said we said before. I think on the um, one of the episodes we've done before, you threw a quick thing in about Lego Batman. I think Lego Batman's fucking amazing. Yeah, because if you know Batman, there are so many jokes in that. That yeah, I, I get that. I know why they've done that, and it's just it's got all these things in it that's just really smart. And like the animated series of Batman, amazing. And like we said earlier on, when people go, it's not my Batman. Pick one. You know, if you if you don't like Batman Returns because it's too dark and pervy, watch Batman Forever. If that's too much for you, watch Batman and Robin. It's fucking stupid. If that's not serious enough for you, watch The Dark Knight. If that's too serious for you, watch Batman Begins. You know, it's like you can pick and choose, and, and I pick and choose. Some I, as much as I hate it, I've watched Batman and Robin quite a few times because it's like... I watch it in a kind of, how did this go so fucking wrong? You know, and and I watch it and, and then it's like, that was disgusting. Right, I need to wash my mouth out with uh, a decent film. So I'll put, you know, The Dark Knight on or, so, or something, you know, and it's like, ah, all right, okay. They can get it right when they put their mind to it or put the right people in in sort of in charge of it, you know. And and that's the thing. I think the whole, the, the whole thing of that having to you know wait what was it eight years between Batman and Robin and Batman Begins Warner Brothers left it eight years I think between films because they wanted people to just get the the stink of Batman and yeah. Robin out of their mind but from Batman Returns to Batman Forever you know the film after it I mean Batman Forever was 96 I think for Warner Brothers just ba Batman Returns was just too dark too dark too twisted like no no this is this is Batman this is meant to be uh, sort of fun. Let's let's, and that's what they did with Batman Forever. It's like let's switch some lights on for fuck's sake. All the lights happen to be neon. Okay, let's make it. Let's get Jim Carrey in. Let's make it. Uh, you know. And then when that was successful, yeah, let's do that, but even more. And then you end up with Batman and Robin. It's like no, you've gone too. You've pushed it too far. Yeah. You've fucked it up now. And it's like right, you need to reset. Wait eight years. Batman begins. Wow, you know it's. And that's why I love the character because it's a character that you can reinvent, reinterpret, whatever you want to call it. But at the core, it's still even animated stuff, kid stuff, even like like I said, Lego Batman. It's still the same core, still the same core. One of the through lines of the whole of Lego Batman is that he is trying to connect, just trying to connect to anybody. Has no connection to people. And you know, like he says at the beginning of the Joker, he's like, "I don't need you. I don't need anybody." It's like, yeah, you, 
you do, otherwise you're completely lost. And then one of the lines in the Batman, Andy Serkis is saying to Robert Pattinson, you know, you're, gonna, you're going too far into this, and I'm worried about you, you're gonna, get, you're gonna lose yourself in this thing, you know? And it's the same right. through line. And I, and I think it's just the character is just so, so good for being reinterpreted. That's why it lasted so long. You know, a, char- a character doesn't last 80 years or whatever the fuck it is without, without being sort of that malleable, you know? Was that a short enough answer? I th- <laughs> <laughs> you could have gone into more depth, but okay. uh, we'll, we'll forget that. Um, so for me, it's the one I grew up watching every Saturday morning or whatever, and it's Adam West. Right. right. I, I just think that, for me, that's Batman. Yeah. But the final question that I sent you is, what Batman films should be avoided if any? And I made sure I put if any, because I get a lot from watching that film with Jim Carrey in it. Um, I right. don't get a lot of enjoyment. I don't think it's a great film, but it's a really interesting like piece of cinema of where things go wrong and how you know how things don't quite work when you want them to. Yeah. With best intentions, you know, when yes. studios just get things wrong. Yeah. Um so I I can't think of any uh, I've not seen the new one and right. I've not seen Hal Berry in oh, Catwoman. No, it's just So yeah. I don't think I'm missing anything there. No, but that's not. like can you think of any films that you're actually like, do you know what? This this one is such a stinker that just avoid it and watch the rest. When you, when I saw that, when you sent the, the question through, I just, I just, my first reaction was, I don't think I'd say to avoid any. You know, like right. I said, Lego Batman is great. Mask of the Phantasm, animated film, fucking great film, absolutely great film. Some people say it's the best Batman film. It's just not live action. The sixties movie. If you're in the right mood, like you said, you fucking pissed yourself all the way through it. If you're in the right mood, The Dark Knight is great. If you're, that's what you want. The Batman is great. You can almost, like I said, you can pick the Batman you want depending on your mood. It's like, it's like you know, what do I want to listen to? Do I want to listen to Slayer or do I want to listen to Enya? You know, what mood am I in? Well, I'm not in the Slayer mood. Right, okay, well, don't listen to Slayer then. You know, and it's it's almost like right. I want to watch Batman. What kind of mood you're in? Well, I don't think I want to sit and watch two and a half hours of a hefty crime drama. Well, don't watch The Dark Knight then. Chuck Lego Batman. You'll be fine. You know. I so get that. if, I, if I you feel had that. to, if I had to say, don't bother with one of them. It would be Batman and Robin, because that's just a that's just a collection of mishaps. Um, I think one of the best one of the best reviews I ever read of that at the time when it came out, which I think was, oh no, yeah, 96. I said it on Batman Forever was 96. I think Batman and Robin was 96. It was described as a, a glittery turd and <laughs> I like it already. something about the arch bollocksness of Batman and Robin was used in the review somewhere. And then it said a turd is still a turd no matter how much glitter you roll it in. <laughs> That's like... Yeah, and when you said about Batman Returns um, looking toyy, it made me think about Batman and Robin, where they uh, Warner Bros. asked Joel Schumacher to make Batman more toyetic, which he said was right. a word he'd never heard before. It's like basically, can you make things in the film that look like toys 
so we can make toys out of them. And they had like toy manufacturers on set. Oh no. That's the point they got to where it's like, right, you shouldn't even be here. Um, I'm trying to make a film, but you're trying to already market and sell yeah. the toys of the things that I'm trying to shoot right now. I haven't even made it yet. You know, so that's the point that Warner Brothers got to. It's like, we can make money off this. It's like, no, you should be thinking we can make a really good film here. You know, and that's why they yeah. ended up such a massive course correction afterwards with um, Christopher Nolan. So I, I wouldn't um, say miss any, but maybe Batman and Robin. But they're all, I think everybody's got their own, you know, what would what would be their favorite Batman and Robin? The same way, like, who's, who's got the... Um, favorite Batman film the same way that people have got their favorite Batman and like some people say Sean Connery is James Bond that's it but for me James Bond's Roger Moore you know because that's who I grew up with like for me Doctor Who is Tom Baker that's it yeah you know even though I'm I'm no way a Doctor Who fan but if you said to me Doctor Who I immediately think of Tom Baker so I think it might be who you came in who your entry level thing you know so if you came in at Michael Keaton that's it but if you came in at Christian Bale you're going to go back and look at Michael Keaton Batman films like now I don't get this yeah or like me Adam West yeah so yeah, yeah that's it I get that makes complete sense um shit that was a long one um <laughs> thanks Paul <laughs> sorry like we talk, I knew we would speak for a while about Batman <laughs> sorry <laughs> I love it Many thanks go out to Paul Chanter there for taking part again this month. Always a delight to have him on. I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say I hope he returns. Maybe maybe I've just taken too much out of him now. We don't know. We'll see. But we're going to have to get back now to some more devilish delights. The gross, the ghastly and the glossy. Because this is 1992 and we're going to head now to number 8 in my top 10 rundown for the best horror films from 1992. Here we go. 